passage is headed, the crucifixion of Jesus. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened so that scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them, and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So my granny decided to do a family tree and to look into the history of our family. This was many years ago. Um, she's died now, but she, I remember her and dad telling me about our family tree. And she discovered that one of our distant relatives was a chap called Archibald Johnston. And I think Luke's got a picture of him here. There he is, Archibald Johnston. Can you see the family re resemblance? <laughs> I think he looks more like my brother than me, in fairness. But uh, there's no family resemblance now because he lived in the 1600s. Um, he was a Scotsman. He was a lawyer. He was in Parliament in England and in Scotland. He was a strong Christian. He was a Scottish covenanter. Um, and he came up against the English, who were at that time trying to lead Scotland away from what he saw was true faith in God. And those in religious power and those in political power wanted him dead. And Charles II charged him with high treason and locked him up 
in the Tower of London. And then he was taken to Edinburgh and he was hanged near his home on the 22nd of July, 1663. And after he was hanged, he was beheaded and they took his head and they stuck it on a stake outside the city gates in Edinburgh as an example and as a reminder for all to see. And today in John chapter 19, we come to the passage of Scripture where Jesus is accused of high treason. And those in religious power and those in political power wanted him dead, and we see those wishes played out today. Now, with Archibald Johnston, you can read up on him and you can decide whether he was guilty or whether he wasn't and whether he should have been hanged for high treason. And it won't really make any difference to your life what you decide, whether my great-great-whatever-grandfather, Archie, was guilty or not. But with Jesus Christ this morning, what you decide about whether he was guilty or not can be life-changing. And it will set the future for your life here on earth and for your eternity. Because what you make of Jesus' death that happened 1,600 years before Archibald Johnston lives makes all the difference. It's changed my life, my view of that event. And it's given power even today to change yours. And I want us to marvel today as I prayed I want us to understand more deeply what happened when Jesus was crucified. Not the practical things. He carried the cross, he was nailed there, and we see the gruesome practicalities of this sort of execution. But what happened when Jesus was crucified? You see, it wasn't just another execution like Archibald Johnston's. Something happened at the cross that is so mind-blowing, so shocking. It's something supernatural and it's something unseen. And the rest of the Bible unpacks what happened at the cross for us. We're going to take a few minutes to think this through. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus was the ultimate convict. We've talked about Archibald Johnston. We hear about other people who are accused of crimes. And we see that Jesus, though, was the ultimate convict. And I don't believe he was just treated like a convicted criminal, carrying the cross, being crucified. I believe at that moment he became the greatest sinner of all time. Turn in your Bibles to... Um, page 1162 because that's a big thing to say you've got to say well what does the Bible say you've actually sung it already this morning 1162 is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 it said God made him God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God 
that is a key verse when we're trying to understand what happened at the cross. He who had no sin, it says. God made him who had no sin. Yes, Jesus had no sin. He'd never done anything wrong. Pilate, in fact, got it right in John chapter 19, verse 6, when he says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. There is absolutely nothing whatsoever. I've looked at this case. I've talked to people. I've heard what's happened. I've seen what's happened. And I can find absolutely nothing wrong that this guy has done. And he's right. Jesus never thought or acted any wrong out. He was pure. He was loving. He was holy. If he was angry, it was absolutely right he was angry. And he did get angry. If he stood up against corruption, and he did, it was because there was corruption. Every word that came from his mouth was always true. He was inspirational. He was a strong leader. He took tough decisions, at times said tough things. But he was always on point. And he never used his leadership to bully others. He never had lustful thoughts or flirty chats. His conversation was pure and uplifting and wise. When he was a carpenter, he never overcharged. He never exploited. He never ripped anyone off. His workmanship must have been truly awesome. And there was no basis for charge against this man because there was no wrong. There was no sin. He was, in fact, the only person who ever lived that has never done wrong. But that verse says that he became sin for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin. It's not like something bad happened and innocent Jesus kind of took the blame. So say I get really angry with someone here this morning, okay? I'm going to pick on Lucas here. So Lucas, I'm really angry, like really angry with you, right? You've really, really annoyed me and done some stuff that's made me cross. You know when you see red and you don't know what to do? He looks frightened now. And I'm so angry, I'm just going to, I'm going to pick up the nearest thing I can find, which happens to be this glass of water. And I'm so angry, I'm going to, <laughs> I'm so angry, I'm going to lash out. You think I'm going to do it, don't you? <laughs> and I throw, the, I'm not going to do it, don't worry. And I throw the water over Lucas and I chuck the glass at him as well because I'm so angry. And he says, well, that's assault. You've assaulted me. And it is assault if I threw a glass at you, Lucas. It would be assault. And there's lots of witnesses to say that I committed that crime. But then my friend Roger, who sits there, he says, well, I'm, I'm your really good friend. And when the police turn up, Roger says, well, actually, I did it. I did it. And the police weren't here, and they, they cart Roger off. And he gets a fine and um, an exclusion order from Lucas. He's not allowed to go near him, that sort of thing. It, it's not like, but really... Everyone knows I did it, you all saw I did it, and I'm still guilty of it. It's not like that with Jesus. That's the difference. It says here that Jesus became my sin. He owned that sin. It was as if Jesus had done it. And he takes all the blame and all the guilt and all the punishment for my sin and for your sin. And the verse goes on, God made him who had no sin to be sin 
for us. So let's just take one minute to think, okay, who's us? So us is me who sinned, but I'm now trusting in the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of my sin. And if there are other Christians, people who trust in the Lord Jesus here, that includes you, doesn't it? So on the cross, Jesus took my sin if I trust and love him, and he took your sin. But this us is even bigger. Because, do you know other Christians in Bristol? I used to go to another church in Bristol this morning. It will be filled with people who are trusting in the Lord Jesus. And he took their sin as well. And what about other countries around the world where people have worshipped him and asked forgiveness for their sins too, wherever they are, and whatever they've done, Jesus became their sin too. That's the us. At this moment in John 19, as he's nailed to the cross, he took all of their sin. Oh, hang on. The us is bigger. What about Christians in the past? What about Archibald Johnston and all the Christians that have lived up until now? What about them? They've trusted in Jesus, and he's taken all of their sin too. And what about the sins that happened before Jesus died? Do you remember all those rituals and all those sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament? They'd take an animal, and the Bible told them to put the animal and kill the animal and put their sin on the animal and then kill the animal. Well, actually, they were trusting God, but really, without knowing it, their sins too, they weren't going on the animal. An animal can't do anything to take away your sin. Their sins by faith were going on Jesus as well. So as people followed God and trusted God, do you see the weight of sin that Jesus took? Christ became sin, not just my sin, he became sin for us. He became the biggest liar because he took all our lies, the biggest bully, the biggest abuser, the biggest perv, the biggest mass murderer in all history. And Pilate said, I find nothing wrong with this man. This man is innocent. But God said, this man is guilty. God couldn't even look at him because he's so holy and our sins are so disgusting. And God turned away from him at that point and poured out all his terror onto Jesus. All his anger, his wrath, and his judgment for all of our sins. And that's why Jesus became the ultimate criminal at that moment in time. And John doesn't focus on the pain of the thorns or the nails or the process of crucifixion particularly. And we could look at uh, clips from films of, of, you know, where Jesus being crucified has been depicted and we'd be shocked of the pain and the agony and the humiliation and the nakedness. But it's the spiritual anguish, it's the punishment for all of that sin that we don't see on the cross. The cross was just the tip of the iceberg for the pain and anguish that Jesus went through to take the wrath for your sin and my sin. That's why he swept blood, because he, because he knew this terror was incoming. That's why he cried in the garden, was there another way? 
That's why there was an earthquake. That's why the sky went dark. That's why the curtain was torn in two. That's why dead people came out of graves. Because there was a serious transaction going on in heaven. A transaction between where Christ became your sin and he took the judgment for all the sin of Christians, past, present, and future on the cross. Why did he do this? That verse in 2 Corinthians answers it. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A transaction goes two ways, right? So this transaction that happened, Christ took our sin, and we gain his righteousness. So the life he did where he did, where he did nothing wrong, that's what we're given. That's the transaction that happened that at first reading you don't see, but when you understand what happened on the cross, that's the transaction that happened. He became my sin. Jesus owned that sin as if he'd done it. He takes the blame, the guilt, the punishment, and I take the perfect life. And God looks upon me and treats me as if I never did it. It's blotted out. My guilt is removed. And God loves you like he loves Jesus. That's what happened on the cross when God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might be righteous it's amazing isn't it what happened on the cross just got two more things to say Jesus was the ultimate king and Andy's alluded to this as we've sung the songs crown him with many crowns the crucifixion was there to set an example to others who do not do what, who not to do what the criminal had done. So just like Archibald Johnston, they stick his head on a stake as an example, don't mess with King Charles II of England, or this will happen to you. And this is why the execution happened here. Don't mess with the religious authorities, and don't mess with the authorities. And Pilate had a problem, because normally you'd write the crime above the criminal. But Pilate had already said, well, I don't have a crime. This guy has done nothing wrong. And we can read about this in verses 19 to verse 22. Um, back, we're going to be back now in John um, chapter 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So he wrote a sign because he didn't have a crime, and the sign was Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, and he was being ironic. If he'd had social media, he would have written, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, L-O-L, I think. Or he would have written, um, when you get to crucify a king, or something like that, to make himself look good. But actually, the words that he wrote were true. 
They were written in three different languages. He wasn't just the king of the Jews. He was going to be the king for everyone. But Jesus was also the promised king. In verses 23 and 24, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. So Jesus Christ was the ultimate convict. He was the ultimate king. But he was also the promised king. Hundreds of years before, multiple occasions, people had written stuff down that would happen on this day in history. And this is one of the reasons I'm convinced that the Bible is true. Because when you look into it, how can something be written down 800 years before and specifically be true? And this happens multiple times through Scripture. This passage that is quoted here, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment, was written hundreds of years before, 800 odd years before. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. The psalmist writes in Psalm 22 verse 18. In Isaiah, it says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes, we were healed. And we've read today, they delivered him to be crucified. They took Jesus and led him away. 500 years before, Zechariah wrote, they will look on me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him who as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as he grieves for a firstborn. And in John chapter 19, verse 34, we're going to get to the point where the soldiers pierced his side and blood and water came out. And in Exodus 12, verse 46, it talks about a sacrifice where not one of its bones will be broken. And we're going to find out later in John that none of Jesus' bones were broken when he was sacrificed on the cross. And normally that's exactly what would happen. Multiple times these things were written. And amazingly, they were preserved by God's hand. And they all pointed to Jesus Christ. He was the promised king. And you and I can have absolute confidence in the truth of this word and the truth of what we're reading today. But he was also the hidden king. He didn't look like the ultimate king. I guess you would have seen King Charles's coronation on the telly. And it was pretty impressive, wasn't it? I mean, that's a coronation. That's the king. It was pretty obvious who he was. But here, Jesus is the hidden king. And we are right now in a hidden kingdom. And sometimes you won't feel like it's a mighty kingdom. And we're called to carry a cross like Jesus carried to his cross. And you don't feel victorious or strong sometimes when you wake up on a Monday morning. And it doesn't look like we're part of this glorious kingdom with this glorious king. But we are. And remember what we said earlier. God loves you like he loves Jesus. And Jesus, our king, listens attentively when you pray.
He's the best listener that's ever lived. And when you pray, he listens attentively. And he puts you in an amazing family. And that family is here at Headley Park Church, but it's a family of Christians around the world, which is a kingdom. And he seats you in heaven in a home forever to enjoy the wonders of heaven. And right now, that kingdom is hidden. And right now, problems come and things can be tough. But as we look to the cross, we see the ultimate king paying the ultimate price for the things that we've done wrong. And Jesus is the ultimate carer. There's an amazing little section which has been preserved for us to read. It says, verse 25, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said, Woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus was the ultimate convict. He was the ultimate king. But here we see him as the ultimate carer. When you're crucified, every breath is excruciating as you have to haul your weight up to breathe. To talk is almost impossible. And you choose your words very carefully. And we've just seen that's the physical pain, but the spiritual pain that Jesus was about to go through as well as he took our punishment. But Jesus sees his mother there. And even in that moment, he's concerned for her. And he uses some of this effort and he expends some of this pain to make sure that she was safe and looked after. He sees it as a priority even when he's on the cross. Many of you here have cared or are caring for someone right now. It's costly and it's painful, but you're doing what Jesus did as you care for that member of that family. You're being Christ-like. Christ -like. You're being obedient as you honor your father and mother, as you love each other in sickness and health as you love your neighbor or your friend, as you love yourself. And this is what Jesus did. And even in those caring times, Jesus saw those as a priority, as an important job. And that's an encouragement to those that care for others, to see that Jesus did that at this key moment in time. Because this is what Jesus is like. He, we saw the horrors that Jesus was about to face. The wrath of God poured out on him. And he looks to an individual and he wants to prioritize in that moment their well-being. And this is the Jesus we see through the Bible. And his, by his Holy Spirit today, Jesus speaks to each of our hearts. It's as if he has this one-to-one -one communication with us. And I remember sitting in church and hearing about Jesus' death on the cross and knowing in my heart that God was speaking to me and I needed to respond.
And Jesus wants to give you something more than social care and making sure that you're looked after in this world. He wants to offer you joy and peace and spiritual satisfaction forever. And there's just a transaction that needs to be accepted by each of us individually. And that transaction is the one that we talked about. The transaction that Jesus on the cross takes my sin and you ask Jesus Christ that you will be forgiven your sin and you believe in your heart that he will be raised from the dead to show that he had that power over sin and he was. And you confess to him and then God looks at you like he looks at Jesus and your punishment goes on Jesus on the cross. It's an amazing thing. Will you accept this gift today? Will you be obedient to God and trust your future into Jesus' hands? I went round um, Edinburgh after I heard about Archibald Johnston. And I was just looking to find out more about him. And I dragged Rachel around a load of second-hand bookshops in Edinburgh for days on end. And in the end, we didn't find any books about him. But I found this one in my old church in Bristol. And amazingly, it's got his last words, his prayer that he prayed just before he was executed. And it says here, the person who wrote the book says that Archibald Johnson grieved that his last words were weak and short because they had to be written in a dungeon. But it stands no need of apology. These are his closing sentences. I do here now submit and commit my soul, body, uh, wife and children and children's children with all others, their friends, his friends and followers, all his doing and suffering unto the Lord's choice mercies, graces, favors, services, employments, empowerments, enjoyments, improvements and inheritance on earth and in heaven and in time and eternity. And then they hanged him. But he prayed for future generations that they would come to know this love of the Lord Jesus Christ that he knew. And in our family, that prayer's been answered. There are many in our family who know and love the Lord Jesus. There are many who don't, but there are some who do. And he's praying for friends of those as well. And his prayer has been answered today in our family. But your prayer will be answered when you pray to the Lord Jesus and ask for the forgiveness of your sins and ask to become part of his kingdom and confess that Jesus is Lord of your life. Let's pray together. Father God, as we've understood more this morning about that transaction that took place, about how you became sin for us and what that meant on the cross. We just commit each person here this morning that they would each become part of that us, part of that hidden kingdom with hidden blessings and a hidden future that will one day be revealed. Amen.